Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have to be gathered together as your people. Lord, you are so gracious to us. You're so kind to us. We live in a sin-tainted world, and it's easy for us to look around and see all the sin and be disgusted. And then we look in the mirror and realize what we are. And you chose to save wretches like us. It's incomprehensible. But Lord, we are thankful when we have our lucid moments, when our mind is thinking correctly. We are overflowing with gratitude. And I pray, Lord, that today will be a reflection of that. I pray that our worship will be pure, that our hearts will be able to lay aside all the distractions that hinder us from worship. And I pray, Lord, that as the word is opened up in Sunday school and then in the morning service and then in the evening service, that you would touch our hearts. Lord, we need your word. We need to be fed. We need to be nourished, even when we don't realize it. Lord, we cannot survive apart from you and your spirit and your word. So pray today, Lord, that we would be energized by the teaching, that we would be transformed by your word, and that we would live lives that are more pleasing to you because of our time here together. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I am very excited to finally be teaching again from Hebrews. And as I did last week, I gave a quick overview of all that we had covered during the previous period of time. And I just was giving you a flyover so that when we jumped into our text today, we would have a little bit more context and a little bit of a reminder. So I was summarizing briefly, and again, I've, I've said this before, I went back and looked. The first message I taught on Hebrews in Faith Builders was March 23rd, 2008. Now, that is an awful long time to be in the book. I never intended to be in the book this long. Certainly a lot of that is not caused by the length of teaching. It's caused by the fact that my schedule gets sidetracked and I do other things. But that seven years of teaching was summarized last week so that we could jump into the remainder of the book and hopefully be educated, enlightened, and taught by what is here. And as again, as always, our verses fit into a broader context. And last week, I was just trying to give you that context. And primarily from the first 10 chapters of the book, the writer was focusing on theological truth that was critical for the hearts of the individuals to whom the letter was written. Some of them were tempted to be distracted by Judaism. They had come out of Judaism. There was a, a pull, a natural pull, a tug at their hearts to go back to the Old Testament ways of worship. And the book of Hebrews is really just a flashing warning sign. Jesus is all you need. It's all about Jesus. It's not about rituals. It's not about animal sacrifices. Jesus is everything. And so the writer went to great lengths over 10 chapters establishing theologically why these Jewish individuals who love the Old Testament and the Old Covenant should never go back to the Old Testament and Old Covenant. He spent 10 plus chapters explaining to them why the only thing they needed was the New Covenant in Jesus Christ. And he over and over and over again pointed them back to the Old Testament and said, look, that's what you revere. The Old Testament always pointed to Christ. And then in chapter 11, he began to give them an exhortation with this great litany of examples of people who had endured great hardship, they had done with difficult things, and yet by faith they had been able to endure. And that led to chapter 12, 
which the entire purpose is to try and convince us that no matter what we face, we can deal with things. No matter what we face, we also can endure if we have faith. We don't need sacrifices. We don't need all these other things. We only need Jesus by faith. And if we have that, then there's nothing that can stop us. And in chapter 12, it really is only the last two chapters of the book that we have left. And certainly there was practical application all through the first 11 chapters. But in chapter 12 and 13, really, the book shifts more from theological instruction of argumentation about why Jesus is sufficient to the so what. How do you live out everything that's been taught? And the beginning of chapter 12 summarizes what's going to go to the end of the book. Verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I mentioned before, that could be a life verse for us. That really summarizes the Christian walk. When you come... To faith in Jesus Christ, the rest of your life is fighting that battle, finishing the race, getting rid of the entangling sins, laying aside the extra weight that keeps you from effectively completing the race that God has put in front of you. We're in a long race. Jesus wants us to exceed. He wants us to do away with sin. He wants us to follow his example and endure no matter the hardship. And that really is what the remainder of the book is about. How do you run the race with endurance? How do you lay aside every encumbrance? How do you avoid that sin which trips us up, that entangles us? And this is a very important instruction because despite the fact that on a Sunday morning we can come here and we sit in comfortable chairs and most Sundays the air conditioner works just fine and we have a lot of electronic devices that make our lives easier, the fact remains we understand life is hard. It's not easy to run the race. It hurts, life does. It's hard work. At times there can seem like our daily struggles don't yield any present rewards. Again, it only seems that way, but that's the reality we live in. And you think about it, we have all these external issues, all these things of life outside of us that cause these struggles and turmoils, and then besides all of that, we have that relentless inner battle against sin. We desire to overcome it, and yet time and time again we find ourselves tripped up and entangled. So chapter 12 is really speaking to people just like us, people who are in the race, people who need to complete the race, but people for whom the race can be hard. Life can be difficult. There can be challenges of every stripe and variety. In fact, Part of all those trials and struggles are the discipline of God. That's also alluded to. We spent several weeks talking about the discipline of God. It's evidence that God loves us, not that God wants to hurt us. And throughout the rest of the chapter, but it's also the, one of the themes of the entire book is this concept of endurance, of continuing on. Warning start as early as chapter 2. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We've got to endure. Turning back is evidence that we never knew Christ in the first place. And in the midst of all of this, and we're really going to see this this morning, the local church 
takes on a prominent and central focus. Quite often, and I am guilty of this, I don't think of my struggles in the context of Lakeside. I think of my struggles in the context of Joe quite often. My daily desire to spend time in the Word and then life bears down. And yet what happens towards the end of Hebrews and what we are going to see today, and we've already seen it previously in other chapters, is there's a corporate focus that also involves our individual lives. In other words, the things we do as individual believers to complete the race, to run the race, to be a part of the race, have an impact on those who are around us. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 and 13 were about. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, rather. I alluded to this last week in that big overview, but I want to highlight it a little bit more since we're diving into verse 14. Verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews chapter 12 say this, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now again, I taught on this back in February, so it was a long time, but it's online. You could go back and listen to it. But the idea here is that in the midst of our struggles, we're supposed to help one another. This idea that we, that we strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble, the idea, if you could picture it, you know, if you've ever been watched any kind of race that's long distance, at the beginning, everybody's got a spring in their step and their arms are going. And then you see the end and they're dragging and their arms are drooping and they can, you know, it's one foot in front of the other. That's what's being talked about here. And so us as the body of Christ, we come alongside one another and we see somebody whose hands can't be there. We come alongside and we grab their arm and help them. We see their knees weak, meaning they're having a hard time walking the Christian life. We come alongside them and help them. And one of the ways that we help them is to make sure that we're walking in obedience ourselves. That's what really is the focus of verse 13, making straight paths for our feet. The idea there is that if we make straight paths for our feet, in other words, if we're walking in obedience, if we're walking in love for Christ, if you love me, you'll obey your commandments, we're going to help those who are around us because we're not going to be a stumbling block. We're going to be an example for them. And the weak who are already struggling aren't going to look at us and say, I give up. I'm done. No, our obedience is supposed to help brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you picture us, I don't know how many of us are here, 50 or so people, if you pictured us all going out and starting off and we're going to walk somewhere, it'd be very easy to see how many people dropped out. But I promise you, we wouldn't let anybody drop out. Those of us who are a little bit stronger, a little bit better shape, we'd be helping other people along. Some people we might carry. That really is the imagery and picture here of what the body of Christ is supposed to do. This is really why we gather as a church. This is part of why we gather. Certainly we come to be individually fed and nourished, but that feeding and nourishment is supposed to enable us to live in a certain way so that all of us can reach the finish line. In fact, if you were to look back, I'm going to read it. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, there was a rebuke for some who had stopped attending church, who had stopped gathering with believers and we see this in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 10. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one, or one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The instruction of 12 and 13 is part and parcel. I mean, it's right in line with that. It's the exact same instruction. That's why we're here. 
the tragedy over and over again, and again, this is just the backdrop leading us into our text this morning, the tragedy is quite often when people are struggling, they pull back from church. They drift away. They kind of want to be at home. They want to be alone. I know my default setting is, you know, I'll just wall myself off. And yet that pulls you apart from the vital strength that God intends you to receive from other people. That's why Hebrews warns against it. Don't let that happen to you. If you're going through struggles, whatever you do, don't stop coming to church. You may have to reprioritize your life. You may give up some things, never give up coming to church. Because this is how God's children survive. And that brings us to verse 14. Really, verses 14 to 17 are some instruction. And and I think what they are corporately is they're an illustration of how do we make straight paths for our feet as a body of Christ. Verse 13 says, make straight paths for your feet. The idea being if you live appropriately, it's going to help other people. I think verses 14 to 17 are just more explanation of how do you do that. Taking a step further, it's, it's an example of how you run with endurance the race before you. How do you lay aside encumbrances? How do you, lay, how do you avoid being entangled by sin? This is similar type of instruction. How do you stay on God's path? I've been reading through Proverbs in my quiet times for the last month or so. I'm going through it a second time. I find that I need the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 4, verses 26 to 27 says this. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. I think this really is getting at the focus of our text this morning. This is what it's talking about. This is an illustration of how you do this very thing. Shows us how we can walk victoriously in the Lord. How can we walk in such a way that people can look at us and say, wow, that's how you do it. Follow me as I follow Christ. That type of instruction is in what we'll be covering for the next few weeks. So I want you to pay close attention to our text this morning, not just in terms of what you need to do in your life, but about us as the body of Christ here at Lakeside. Follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 14 to 17. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Even though it's going to take some time for you to see how this all fits together, I can tell you a lot of times when I do my initial readings of text, it doesn't jump out to me what it means. I didn't understand fully what was going on the first few times I read it, but I feel like I do now. And over the next few weeks, I pray that you'll be able to see it. But you'll have to trust me at this point that everything I just read is really talking to us about how do we walk the straight and narrow? How do we walk the straight and narrow path? And so 
as we look at this, I'm going to say to you that it's not just about how you do it individually. This is instruction for how we as the body of Christ at Lakeside do it. How do we as the Faith Builder Sunday School class do it? This is instruction not just for individuals. This is a call to us as the corporate body of Christ. It's about our church family, not merely ourselves. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to see, I've broken it down this way. Right now I'm calling it five keys to our church family walking the straight and narrow. In my own notes, I have a six in parentheses because it may turn into six keys by the time I'm done. But right now, I've broken this down as five keys to our church family walking the straight and narrow. And the first one is all we're going to have time to cover today. But it's a lot. And the first key is this. Strive to live as peacemakers. Strive to live as peacemakers. In verse 14, the opening clause in English says this. Pursue peace with all men. Pursue peace with all men. This is a relatively straightforward statement. If I were to ask you of the great mysteries of the Bible, I don't think any of you would look at that clause and say, here's a great mystery. I have no clue what is being talked about here. But this has profound implications for our lives here at Lakeside, individually and as a corporate body. So I want to dig a little deeper into this phrase that might seem at first glance to need no explanation. If you have different translations, at times the words would be different. But in English, the word pursue conveys an idea. But the language of the Greek, it's a proper translation to say pursue, conveys something that is a little more urgent. You think of kids playing on the playground, one pursues another. But this actually has an intensity and urgency that goes beyond merely I'm going to follow them. It's not a casual command. This has a sense of seriousness, immediacy, and urgency. One commentator that does a lot of great work with Greek language from century ago. I'm not a Greek scholar. I have to rely on these godly men who can, who can illuminate these words. Had the idea, conveyed some imagery of like a hunt. When somebody's hunting something. And there's an urgency, and you're on the trail, and you're on the track, and you're seeking after it. Caused me to think about situations where if you've ever seen a bloodhound that's a tracking dog. You know, they've got the dog on the leash, and eventually whatever it is they want them to track, they'll show, they'll smell, and then they let them go, and what does the dog do? <laughs> Taken off. Dog doesn't know anything else. He's not going to stop until he finds that scent. It's that type of urgency. It's that type of immediacy that is supposed to grip us. And again, in the context, the command is plural. When you look at this with English, it could be plural or singular. But in the Greek, this is plural, meaning it goes beyond just me as an individual. This is us as a corporate body. Certainly, there's an individual component. Lakeside can't do it if I'm not doing it. Lakeside can't do it if you're not doing it. 
But this is a command that is of a plural nature. All of us are supposed to be about this. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Lakeside cannot be what God intends Lakeside to be if we as a corporate body are not pursuing peace as it's said here. So there's this urgency of the hunt that peace is out there and we have to pursue it and yet even when I say the word peace it may just seem self-evident peace that's not a big deal but we would be wrong to underestimate the elusiveness of our prey because peace is hard to find In the culture in which we live, peace is a completely neglected virtue. And I'm not talking about peace from the protest of the 60s and 70s and symbols or anything. I'm talking about true peace. In fact, protesting, rioting, it's almost considered an American right and virtue. You don't get your way, make sure they hear about it. If we're unhappy, it's our patriotic and constitutional duty to scream. And make sure that everybody else knows how unfair it is and how unjust it is. Yet the Bible paints a completely different picture of what it means to follow Christ. Peace is a central focus of the Word of God. Obviously, since I was preparing to teach, I was thinking about this a lot this week. I was reading through a lot about this. But peace is throughout the scriptures and it starts of course with the gospel I'm just going to read several verses you may not have time to turn to all of them but I'll make sure I give you the verse reference I would encourage you to write it down and look it up in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 the apostle Paul says this therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Christianity, the central message, the primary reason that we gather is to proclaim that there is a way to have peace with God. Apart from our faith in Christ, every person around is at war with God, God's enemies. Continuing in Romans chapter 5 at verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. I'm not going to go down a side road. But be very careful about ever thinking of any unbeliever as somebody that really is open to God. Well really they're not, they're not enemies of God. They're not really hostile to God. That's not what scripture says. What happens is some people are just smiling enemies. And they're really friendly enemies. My best friend in the world is an unbeliever. I take it back. Debbie's my best friend in the world. But as far as outside of my family, and Debbie knows that, by the way, so there's no secret here. And I love him like a brother. And he's a great guy, and he's very moral. But he's an enemy of God. Not because he's a bad guy, he just is. Everyone is apart from Christ. So the gospel is centered around the fact that the enemies of God who hate God can have peace with God. In fact, this idea of someone who could bring peace was part and parcel of the prophetic 
pointing in the Old Testament towards the Messiah. Very familiar verse at Christmas time. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. But peace isn't merely something that we can have with God, although that is something we will be praising God for for all eternity is the fact that we have peace with God. What we see in Scripture is that peace is an aspect of the character of God. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul's giving instruction just like our text this morning. He's making it clear, God is a God of peace. He said the same thing in Philippians 4, 9. He references the God of peace. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, the Apostle Paul talks about the God of peace. So since peace is a part of the very character of God, it should not be surprising to us that as believers, when the Spirit of God comes and dwells in us, we become partakers of that peace. One of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. Galatians 5, to 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. There are a lot of things that I associate with Pastor Steve. One of the things that ministers to my heart is the number of time that I've heard him talk about walking by the Spirit. And part of walking by the Spirit is producing the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. In fact, Jesus made clear that peace was a part of the legacy that he would leave to his disciples. In John 14, 27, we read this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So I want to summarize just briefly these theological truths about peace. God is peace. It's part of his character. And God is so loving and merciful that he unilaterally makes peace with his enemies and makes them his children. Don't ever let your thinking get off that we and God came to the negotiating table and we worked out a peace treaty. That wasn't it at all. God unilaterally declared peace and saved us. And after making us his children, God endows every single one of his children through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, with the ability to produce peace in our lives. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus himself said that peace would be a part of the legacy that he leaves with his children. From these truths, and trust me, I only gave you a sampling of hundreds of scriptures that deal with peace. 
But from these truths, we look at peace and we see verse 14 saying, pursue peace with all men. And we say, well, this should not be so hard. We've been shown peace. We've experienced peace. We're supernaturally enabled to produce peace. And yet peace is hard to produce. In the realm of humanity, few things are as elusive as peace. From an an historical viewpoint, you can look back over millennia of human history and there's very few years where there's not war. Very few. Even in my lifetime, war has happened predominant. You go back to my mom who was born in 1935 and her whole life was wars. From a little girl, her dad went into the Navy in World War II and it never stopped. But peace is far beyond just global conflicts between sovereign nations. We understand the daily struggles for peace in interpersonal relationships. In the world around us, in our own lives, in our own homes. Peace isn't one of those things that just happens by osmosis. Certainly we have every opportunity to produce peace. We have every resource we need to do it. If we are not living in peace, it's not because God didn't give us what we needed or God threw a curveball that made peace impossible. That's false. Rather, it's an indication of how difficult it is even for God's children to overcome the tendencies of the flesh. Again, I looked up countless scriptures on peace and if you see a picture of scripture beyond all those things I already told you I'm going to give you a few more scriptures to show you that God has always been giving instruction to his people pursue peace pursue peace and he wouldn't spend time telling us to pursue peace if it was something that happened automatically there's probably a few scriptures on rest but I don't remember many scriptures that tell you how to sleep you really don't have to learn how to sleep Your body's going to sleep. Certainly there are scriptures that say you need to rest. Jesus pulled his disciples away. But there are certain things that just happen naturally. Certainly as a a small child you have to be taught some things. But a lot of life happens naturally. Peace is not one of them. Pastor Steve taught through Psalm 34. But Psalm 34 says depart from evil and do good. At verse 14 it says this. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. I'm not going to read it. Psalm 126 and 7 talks about God's desire for peace and yet the absence of peace. Proverbs 12, 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. Jesus said in Mark 9, 50, be at peace with one another. Romans 12, 18. The Apostle Paul said this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, at the very end of verse 13, live in peace with one another. It's a small sampling of hundreds of verses that talk about this idea of peace. So I think it's safe to say from Scripture that God cares much about peace. And I pray that I've already shown you enough from the Scriptures that if we were just stepping back and we were looking at this logically We would understand that of all the people on the planet, those who should exude peace are the redeemed children of God. 
we should be characterized by peace, not solely peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things should be in equal measure. But peace should not be something that is foreign to a Christian. In fact, I'm convinced that when people come to Lakeside, peace should be a dominant characteristic of our church. Not the only characteristic. Again, all these other characteristics are critical. But people who come into our midst should not only see our love, they should also recognize a tangible peace in this place, both in our worship as a corporate body and as they interact with us individually. And I want to encourage you, I think I see that a lot at Lakeside. Since I've been here, we've not had a church split. I don't recall anybody jumping on the stage and trying to wrestle Steve because of something he was teaching. But we're always ready. (laughs) We got your back, Steve. (laughs) But if you look at our popular culture, and I don't worry much about popular culture, because obviously it's distorted by Satan and the people who define popular culture or generally unbelievers who are under the domain of darkness. And so I understand that it's not an accurate picture. But the reality is, when a lot of Americans think of Christians, they think of people who are always angry. They're mad about something. They're protesting something. They're screaming about something. Certainly there's always outliers was the Westboro Baptist Church who were out screaming and hollering at soldier funerals and that kind of foolishness. But there's enough normal Christians whose lives are characterized by anger and rage and bitterness that we can understand some of society's stereotypes find their source in reality. I've been in churches for over 20 years now And I know I've seen this. In fact, while Christians should be producing the fruit of the Spirit, if you go a couple of verses earlier in Galatians 5, verses 19, that talk about the deeds of the flesh, quite often amongst Christians you see enmities and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions and envying. Those are all the things that make peace unattainable. People living in the flesh and reacting in a fleshly way don't bring about peace. I understand that some of my observations are inevitably tainted by my experiences as a lawyer. And if lawyers think that's an asset, everybody else understands that's a liability. But what I used to deal with were individuals and I got the opportunity by God's grace to witness human reaction to injustice. Primarily in the workplace. And what I have seen is that the reaction of unbelievers and the reactions of Christians in my own observation largely are the same. If your boss is unfair... The Christian's mad and upset and is liable to be protesting or dragging their feet or spreading gossip and rumors with everybody else so people will understand how bad the boss is and how unfair they are. That contradicts scripture. I'm sorry. 
or even in relationships. Someone perhaps in our family is not open to the Word of God. They don't believe what we believe. Perhaps they insult our faith. And rather than lovingly and quietly praying for them, we get angry and we're going to become God's hammer. And we're going to hit the nail until they either bend or come to faith. When someone insults us or pushes us, our natural reaction is to do what every American is trained to do from birth. We retaliate. You're not going to treat me like a sucker. I'll get you back. And I see increasingly as our cultural climate erodes an anger coming from Christians that is not righteous. The world that we live in has always been hostile to the gospel. We were just harboring the illusion that America was on our side. Because for a long time, their views lined up with our views. But their views weren't always biblical. And so now, over and over and over again, rather than Americans responding in love and grace to an eroding culture, Christians, by and large, are getting angrier and angrier and louder and louder. If you were not here when Pastor Steve taught recently on homosexuality, you need to go back and listen to that. That's an example of someone accurately and biblically calling sin, sin, but doing it in a peaceful way. Doing it with love. Praise the Lord that we have an example like that in our midst that we can see here is how you don't accept and tolerate wickedness and yet you still live in peace. I get a lot of emails. I get a lot of circulation. I see more and more people doing more and more things and I think from a Christian perspective we need to take our collective breaths and pause and we need to look in the mirror and say are we people of peace and we're not just supposed to be at peace with one another we're supposed to be at peace with everyone we don't need to be those who are screaming and yelling We don't need to be those who have torches and pitchforks that are going to tear down evil. Is there such a thing as righteous anger? Absolutely. Jesus expressed it, but let me warn you, most of us aren't Jesus. I hope you're awake and you pondered what I was really saying. I think most of us come close to righteous anger when we see an innocent child harmed. But when you look at the world around us, quite often our anger is personal. We're just mad. But even if we were exhibiting righteous anger, we don't fight our battles with the weapons of the flesh. Again, our reaction, and it certainly would be my reaction, I want to be like Peter. I want to grab a sword and start swinging. That's not what God's called us to do. This is supposed to be a central focus of our lives as a corporate body. We're supposed to pursue peace with all men. Let me bring one other element of this home. This is talking to us as a corporate body. We all have to do this. But I really do also want you to look 
at your relationships in your home? Are you living in peace in your home? Are you living in peace with your children? Are you living in peace with your spouse? Are you living in peace with your parents? Paul doesn't qualify the pursuit of peace, but he puts a, a practical understanding about it. Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You can't control someone else's sinful heart. If they want to, they can rage against you. But what you can control is that you never respond in kind. That you never take the bait. That no matter how much they hurl insults at you or attack you or do those things, you don't have to respond in kind. So I pray that you'll think this week about peace. That you'll think about what aspect of peace you can bring to Lakeside so that as people come here, will they see in your life peace? Or will they still see boiling anger and turmoil and strife? As with any area where we struggle, if you're not living at peace now, repent. The grace of God is such that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That includes if we have not been peacemakers. There's a lot more in this text that's going to help us walk on the straight and narrow. But a beginning point is to be people of peace. Join me as I close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I think of the number of times in my own life where I've not been a man of peace. And Lord, I trust that there are brothers and sisters that are listening to this prayer who can see that in their own life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to truly repent that you would help us to turn away from the deeds of the flesh. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us would pursue this elusive goal of peace, both individually and as a corporate body. Pray, Lord, that each one of us would never be the ones who disturb the peace here at Lakeside. Pray that you would help us to continually remember that you are a God of peace, that you've given us peace, And we never can say that it was beyond our ability to produce peace because you've given us your spirit to enable us to do so. I pray, Lord, that faith builders will be characterized as a class of peace. And then in turn, we as part of the larger body of Christ here at Lakeside will do our part to ensure that when people come here, they sense not only your love, but they see the peace of God in this place. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.